0: Amen. Okay, well, I know that uh, the the weather outside, it feels like maybe fall isn't coming this year, Uh, but this week, it it marks for a lot of students uh, all across the state of Iowa, it marks that uh, either wonderful or horrible day uh, of heading back to school. Now, you students in here, uh, if you love the first day of school, you love going back to school, I want to hear one big shout. (laughs) okay we got one or two there we go now the first day of school it's a little bit polarizing uh perhaps parents love it Uh, i know for me as a kid i despised it i actually i found out i had tear ducts uh when it came to the first day of school i would just sit there and cry and there's something about the start of school and like particularly this time of year that like the weather, Lord willing, starts to shift a little bit, school kind of comes back around, some of those familiar rhythms. There's something that stirs up inside of me, just a flood of old memories, and even just some old impulses and instincts that are associated with the beginning of school. And I bet you all have some of those as well, but I know for me, I used to be a runner, and so every fall, it would mark, like, getting back together with my cross-country team, uh, my teammates, and running. So still, every year, around this time of year, I get this urge, these impulses uh, to, to pick it back up again and to get back into running. And then I wait just a little bit, and it goes away, <laughs> and everything is good again. But something that also comes back to my mind every year in the fall is my testimony, I became a Christian in the fall of my sophomore year at Drake University, and every year around this time of year, there's just memories of coming to Christ in my testimony that are brought back to mind. And at the time, I was completely unchurched. Uh, I came to Christ through reading the book of John. I I, I came across the gospel um, and understood the gospel through the book of John. And it was not until actually the spring of my sophomore year that I finally got connected into the church. It was actually our church. And when I did, I stepped into church for the first time in my life. Uh, For one thing, I I was so encouraged by the people, I really enjoyed the people. They were incredibly kind, and, and they lived life on purpose. And I was so encouraged by that. But also these people, when I stepped into the church for the first time, I realized they do a lot of really weird things that I don't understand. Uh, One of them was like praying out loud, for example. Didn't understand what that was or why they did it. But another was this public dunking ceremony that they called baptism. And at the time, after they would dunk somebody and baptize them, then they would follow it up with this loud... Clapping, singing, uh, horribly off key. And that was my introduction to baptism. Okay? Later that summer, I too was baptized as a believer in Christ. And at the time, I think I understood that baptism was commanded for Jesus' followers. I understood that it was therefore something I needed to do as a follower of Jesus. Uh, and I understood that it was a big deal in the church, but I really didn't understand why. If you would have asked me the question, why is baptism essential in the life of a Christian or for the church, I don't think I would have been able to give a very good answer. I probably would have said something like, well, it's in the Bible. And that's true and good, uh, but my understanding of baptism was relatively shallow. And that's okay. Uh, But what we want to do today is help grow the depth of our understanding of baptism, and through that, really grow in appreciation of this wonderful grace from God that is baptism. Okay, and we're going to gain that deeper understanding by answering four key questions about baptism, four crucial questions around baptism. What is baptism? Number one, who should be baptized? Why should a believer be baptized? And then finally, how should a believer be baptized? Four crucial questions about baptism. What is baptism? Who should be baptized? Why should a believer be baptized? And how should a believer be baptized? Now, the first question we're going to address is what is baptism? And when we say that, we don't mean like describe the process. We will touch on that a little bit later. But what we really mean is like, what is the significance of baptism? What is it? You know, Jesus, he made baptism a huge deal in the Great Commission. Okay, so the Great Commission, the end of Matthew 28, it's also the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus, he, he gives this incredible mission statement for the church and for every believer on the planet. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, Matthew 28 should shape and guide and instruct your life in really significant ways. And what Jesus does in the Great Commission is that he puts baptism like front and center in the Christian life. He says this, and in the in the mission of God. He says, Jesus came near and said, all of authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says to his disciples, listen up, guys, I'm the boss everywhere of of all things, of all time. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus, he's putting baptism front and center in the Christian life. But why what is its significance? Why is it so important? Well, Romans 6, I believe, gives us a little clue into the importance of baptism. This is not the whole picture, but it's a clue, okay? And it's a clue that, that clues us in that, that baptism, there is something more going on than just what meets the eye. There's a, a picture or a symbolic meaning of baptism that's Important in the life of Christians. You can look at Romans chapter 6. We're going to read this together, starting in verse 1. Paul starts with a rhetorical question, and he's anticipating this question on the heels of explaining the gospel of grace. That it really is by grace that we receive our salvation. We receive forgiveness through Jesus for all of our sin for all time. And he says, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin? So that God's grace can multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? First of all, he's saying believers are dead to sin. Coming to Christ means repenting, turning away from our sin towards God to receive his grace. Because you're dead to sin. You can't still live in it. And he says, here, let me help explain this with a picture. Verse 3, or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus, you were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. He's saying there's this symbolic picture in baptism of your old life, dead and gone, buried with Christ. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. He's saying at the present time we get to walk in newness of life. So it's a picture of our present life as well, coming up out of the water, clean, washed of our sin. And then he says this, For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. He points us ahead. He says, and your future, it's like that fully emerged out of the water to brand new eternal life forever, resurrected with Christ. So baptism represents almost like a biography of our life, of our past, present, and future. Past, old life, our life of sin, dead and gone, buried Our new life, clean, washed, coming out of the water, ultimately pointing us ahead to our resurrected life, eternal life, in Christ, in heaven, forever. But the significance of baptism, it is a lot more than just a picture of our life in Christ. Okay? The real significance of baptism is a lot more than the fact that it's a picture The real significance of baptism is in the fact that it is the sign of the new covenant. It is the sign of our covenant relationship with God, externally uniting us by faith into the redeemed people of God. The real significance of baptism is that it is the sign of the new covenant externally uniting us into the people of God, or externally marking us as the redeemed people of God. Now, I know that's a little bit of a mouthful, but we're going to talk through this, and I I hope that it helps to simplify uh, and break this down for us. Now, do you know that the whole world, it can be divided really into two different types of people, okay? God's people and not God's people. You, You could split the whole world into two different types of people. When, it, when you boil it all down, either you are in covenant relationship with God, one of God's people, or you are not God's people. Either you are in covenant relationship with God, one of God's people, who is going to spend all of eternity, in eternal life, with the Lord, as His people, or you are not God's people. Every single one of you here is either one of God's people and you'll spend eternity with Him in eternal life in heaven or you are not God's people and if you were to die today, you would stand condemned and judged, separated from God and everyone else in hell and that is how you can boil down the world. Either you are part of God's people or you are not. Now, if you are part of God's people, the question I want you to think about this morning is this. How did you become one of God's people? How is it that you find yourself on the inside as one of God's people? Were you born that way? No. You, just like me, you were born with a sinful nature. And and our, our lives and our choices, they reveal that sinful nature. We were not born God's people. We were born not God's people. So how is it that you became God's people? Did you do something? Did you do something great? Did you go to church? Did you go to church enough times so that now you really are part of God's people? Or or did you like help somebody across the street and uh, discover the cure for cancer and do some other great moral good in the world? No, that is not how you went from not God's people to now find yourself, if you are in fact one of God's people, as one of God's people. How did you become one of God's people? If you are one of God's people, then you arrived there the same way that anyone else did. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It is not by works. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, for you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works, so that no one can boast. In other words, The way that we entered into the redeemed covenant community of God's people. The way that we went from not God's people to God's people. And entered into that covenant community. It is by an internal work of conversion by grace through faith in Christ. There is an internal work of conversion that God accomplishes. Taking a sinful, broken, fallen human being and giving them a brand new heart, a brand new spirit by grace through faith in Christ. The internal work of conversion. That is how we find ourselves in this wonderful place, this wonderful community called God's people who will spend all of eternity with eternal life in heaven. Okay? That is how it works. 2 Corinthians 5 calls us a new creation. The old is dead and gone. The new has come. That internal work of conversion by grace through faith in Christ. But what about externally? Is there anything externally unique about the people of God? Another way to ask it is this. What externally places us into this covenant community of God's people? What marks us? And that is where baptism comes in. Baptism is the external sign that marks us as part of the covenant community of God's people, it externally marks us into the redeemed community of God's people. And it is the people of God who are members of that community who perform the baptism that ushers them in, that marks them, that welcomes them, that affirms them into the covenant community of God's people. This is why the instruction for baptism that Jesus gives in Matthew 28 is actually given to who? The baptizer. (laughs) The the people of God. It's given to... To the one who will affirm those who ought to be and are to be marked as God's people among God's people. This is the way that covenant signs work. Remember, baptism, it is the sign of a covenant relationship that if you are God's people, you have with the Lord. You stand in The Lord through a covenant relationship and baptism is the external sign that marks us as part of that covenant community. And this is why baptism is such a significant thing in the life of a believer and for the church. It is the mark. It is the sign that we are, in fact, God's people. Now, to be extremely clear, does receiving the external sign of baptism make you one of God's people? No. No, it does not. It does not change the internal reality. Okay? This is why, for example, Jesus has given instructions for the church around sin and the removal from the church of the one who walks in unrepentant sin. Because by their sin, they're demonstrating they're not actually one of God's people. And that act of baptism or even welcoming someone in as a member of the church does not change the internal reality. Baptism does not produce conversion. That is done by grace through faith in Christ. It is the work of God. Another way to ask the question, though, is this. Does baptism or does not getting baptized make you not a Christian? Does refusing baptism make you not a Christian, not saved, not one of God's people? The answer to that question is no. But it does two very significant, and consequential things. So if you are genuinely a believer in Christ, remember, the way that we go from not God's people to God's people, it is by grace through faith in Christ. It's an inner work of conversion, okay? But if as a believer of Christ, who is in fact genuinely one of God's people, but you refuse to be baptized, what it does is two things. Number one, It makes you disobedient to Jesus. And that's a big deal. Okay? We are not trying to live in disobedience to Jesus as God's people. But two, it means this. If you are not baptized as a believer in Christ, if you are a believer in Christ and not baptized, it means that God's covenant community, His people... They have not yet, because they cannot yet, affirm you. They have not yet affirmed you or received you into the covenant community. They have not externally united with you in the covenant community of God's people. In other words, it sets you on an island when you refuse baptism as a believer. It puts you in no man's land. okay. And that's a big deal. Biblically speaking, there is no category of a believer, a genuine believer, who God has converted by grace through faith in Christ, that refuses baptism. There's not a biblical category for that. It puts you on an island. It puts you in no man's land. And that's a huge deal because the redeemed people of God are not supposed to be on an island. They're not supposed to be in no man's land. They're supposed to be in the center of God's people, in His community. Uh, We walk with the Lord as we walk with one another in the covenant community. And through that, we experience the gracious life of Christ. In baptism, it's the way that God externally marks His people as his people, among his people. That leads us to question number two. Who should be baptized? Who should be baptized? And and the reason we ask this question second is that once you understand baptism's significance, it's much easier to answer the question of who should be baptized. So if it is the sign that externally marks us as a part of that covenant community of the people of God, then... Who should be baptized? The people of God. All of them. The people of God. Those who are believers in Christ. In other words, baptism is to be practiced by those who have repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And this is the biblical pattern that we see throughout the New Testament. People coming to faith in Christ... That internal work of conversion is accomplished by grace through faith in Christ. And then they receive the external mark of God's people in baptism. In Acts chapter 2, for example, verse 36, this is Peter preaching the gospel at Pentecost. Notice how clearly he preaches the gospel here. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty... So that phrase, I love that phrase, let all the house of Israel know with certainty. He, he's saying, let them believe, let them have faith that this, that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. He's saying, believe with certainty, have faith that Christ who was killed has been raised again and is the Lord and the Messiah the Savior. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. It's that internal work of conversion. And said, they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized. Each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as our Lord, the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he testified, and he strongly urged them, saying, "Be saved from this corrupt generation." So those who accepted His message were baptized. And that day about 3,000 people were added to them. And throughout the New Testament, this is the example that we see in the scriptures. Who should be baptized? It's those who heard the gospel and received it. They were pierced to the heart. The internal work of God accomplished in them. And then by faith, they obey the command of Christ, receive baptism, and they are marked externally as his people. And not only that, but what we see in verse 41, they were added to the church. Just a little teaser for you. In a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about church membership. We're going to be back here in Acts 2. Because not only were they marked as part of the church, they were added then to the church to walk in continual fellowship together as the people of God. People come to faith in Christ, they repent, they believe, and then they receive baptism. If you are a believer in Christ, if you have not yet been baptized as a believer, then you need to be baptized as a believer in Christ. Now a question that you might have rolling around in your mind. As we're talking about baptism is this. Where does infant baptism fit in? Where, where does infant baptism. Where does that come from? Where does that fit into the equation? Maybe some of you here were baptized as babies. And you're wondering to yourselves. Uh, I think I've been baptized. Right? Or wrong. Uh, um, Should I be re-baptized or just baptized? Have I been baptized? And where does this come from? Well, the first thing you need to understand about infant baptism, and I'm going to talk a little bit about infant baptism today. We could have a much longer conversation. We don't have time for that, okay? If you would like to have a longer conversation about it, I would love to talk through it, so would any of our pastors, okay? If you want to grab a cup of coffee sometime and work through infant baptism, we would love to do that. It's a helpful conversation to have. But uh, one thing that I want you to understand about infant baptism is that there are two very different ideas and understandings when it comes to infant baptism, okay? So don't lump all of infant baptism into one big bucket. It's not, okay? Okay? Now, one view of infant baptism is what the Roman Catholic Church would practice. There are others in that camp as well, but generally speaking, that's kind of one big bucket. And that view of infant baptism would connect baptism to the work of salvation. In other words, in order to be saved, a part of what needs to happen in your life is to be saved. Baptized. It contributes to the work of salvation under the Roman Catholic view, which is why they baptize infants, because there is a, uh, a, a, an attachment to the work of inner conversion and salvation of a person. Okay? And I believe, and I, my intention here is not to be disparaging. Okay? Okay? And I believe that there are genuine Christians in the Roman Catholic Church. I have little doubt of that. But what I would say is this if you believe that baptism contributes in part or in total to your salvation in any way, shape, or form, that is a heretical lie. From the pits of hell. That is going to get you condemned. To believe. That a work of man. Can. And does contribute. To God's work of salvation. In a human being. Is a heretical lie. And that will get you condemned. There is no work of man. That will contribute to. Your salvation. Now, there are some nuances within even that Roman Catholic understanding of infant baptism. We don't have time to cover all of those today. The point being, there is a view that says baptism contributes to salvation. That needs to be rejected wholeheartedly. Now, there's another infant... Uh, view of infant baptism that would be held by our Presbyterian or Reformed brothers and sisters in Christ, and that view of infant baptism would be called covenantal paedo baptism or Reformed covenantal paedo baptism. And what you need to understand about covenantal paedo baptism is that they would essentially agree. Our brothers and sisters, our Presbyterian or Reformed brothers and sisters in Christ, they would essentially agree everything that we have taught up to this point this morning about baptism, about what it is, about its significance, about the importance of baptism in the life of a Christian. Even that those who come to Christ must be baptized as believers, they would also completely reject the idea that baptism in any way, shape, or form contributes ...to our salvation... ...we would agree... ...on the gospel... ...that it is by grace... ...through faith in Christ... ...and many of them... ...they would actually be able to teach... ...what we have taught so far... ...about the significance of baptism... ...even better than I can... Okay, ...but the point where we disagree... ...it is on the question... ...of when baptism should occur... ...specifically... ...when it comes to the children of parents who are in the covenant community of God's people. That's who you're dealing with. Okay? So even for the person who grew up outside of the church, they would agree on the timing of baptism that it should come after they have repented and come to faith in Christ. But specifically for children of parents who are in that covenant community of God's people, What they would say is that those children, they are instructed by God to be raised in the covenant community, which we would affirm, we would agree with. The instruction is that parents, raise your children in the fear of the Lord. Okay, bring them up in the covenant community. It's why we bring our kids to church with us. It's why we ask them to sing songs of worship and praise with us. It's why we have them pray It's why we have them join us in the study of God's word. But for the person who believes in reformed covenantal pedo-baptism, they would say if they are to be brought up in the covenant community of God's people, then they ought to be marked as such. And that is not because... They believe that it accomplishes the internal work of conversion. It is not because they believe that every single one of those children will eventually come to genuine saving faith in Christ. But instead they believe that this is the way that the sign ought to work. It ought to point ahead. And if they are to be raised in the covenant community of God's people, they ought to be given the sign pointing ahead in hopes that and in trust that One day, that child will have that internal work of conversion accomplished through God's grace by faith in Christ. Now, remember, that's not the example that we have spelled out in the New Testament. It's also not how we see, therefore, the sign of baptism functioning in the examples that we have in the New Testament, which is why we don't practice infant baptism. But I want to point that out just so you understand, there is a lot of nuance in the issue of infant baptism, and there is so much that we would absolutely agree on with our Presbyterian or Reformed brothers and sisters in the Lord, for example. okay. And again, I'll just say this. If you want to have a longer conversation through some of these things, Our pastoral team would love to, any of us pastors would love to sit down and walk through that with you. But in love, what we would say is this, as it regards infant baptism, if you were baptized as a baby and have not received baptism as a believer in Christ, then you need to be baptized. If you were baptized as a baby what we would say is, you haven't yet been baptized. You need to be baptized as a believer in Christ. Okay? Again, you need to be marked as one of God's people, by God's people, among God's people. Question number three. Why should a believer be baptized? Why? Why? Now, I'm not going to belabor this point because uh, I think if if it's not obvious now why we should be baptized as a believer, uh, then either I'm not doing my job or you haven't been listening. (laughs) But as we really work through what baptism is, the significance of it, and who should be baptized, I think it becomes self-evident why we ought to be baptized. But if you want to boil it down even further, I believe you can. Fundamentally, the reason we get baptized is this. Jesus has commanded his followers to be baptized. Fundamentally at its core. Not only has Jesus commanded his followers to be baptized. But he has commanded his church to baptize. To mark fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as God's people among God's people. Okay? And so it is... An act of obedience. Why should we be baptized? It is obedience to Jesus. But beyond that, it's also, it is a wonderful declaration of the work of God. It's a wonderful, glorious declaration of of the saving work of God and the worth of Jesus in the life of a sinner who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ. It's an opportunity for God to be glorified for the work that He has done But again, if you want to understand why we ought to be baptized as believers, I think the most helpful thing you can do is to understand its significance and to understand who should be baptized. Now, The last question I want to address this morning is this. How should a believer be baptized? How? We'll talk a little bit about the practice of baptism. And I want to point out two important things with the practice of baptism. Number one, believers should be baptized by Immersion. By immersion. Meaning believers should be brought down under the water and lifted back up out of the water. Now if you're baptizing believers, generally speaking, this isn't much of an issue. If you're baptizing babies, that's where it becomes more of an issue where you see things like sprinkling. And that is for obvious reasons if any of you have infants. But here's why we say that baptism should be done by immersion. First of all, it's what the word means, okay? Baptize comes from the Greek word baptizo. It means immersion, to immerse. And so the, the word baptize, it's a transliteration rather than a translation. A translation would take uh, a Greek word, convert it to the corresponding English word. That's not what happened with the word baptizer, or baptizo. What happened is the English Translation took baptizo in Greek and the, as the story goes the reason they transliterated to baptize is that they realized okay King James doesn't practice immersion so let's not let that cat out of the bag transliterate it from baptizo to baptize now that's just as the story goes it's hard to verify things like that But if you look at the New Testament examples of baptism, what you'll notice is that they all seem pretty clearly to exhibit immersion. So Jesus, for example, is baptized in the Jordan. Remember, he goes down into the water, he comes back out, and the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. The voice of God comes. It's amazing. Or even John, the the region he baptized in, the reason he was there is because it had lots of water, okay? It, It... Follows, therefore, that you would need a lot of water to perform a baptism. Or the eunuch, that Philip leads to Christ. Remember that story of the eunuch in the chariot? He's reading Isaiah. Philip comes across him. He's like, hey, what does this mean? And Philip's like, hey, uh, let me share the gospel with you. That was like the easiest evangelism ever. And he comes to Christ. He says, what should keep me from being baptized? Great question, by the way. And there's a lake, lo and behold, not too far away. And they go and he goes down into the water and he comes back up. Or you think back to Romans 6. That picture that's painted for us of baptism. You were brought, buried in death, brought back up, out into new life. And so baptism, it really needs to be practiced by immersion. Uh, But second, how should a believer be baptized? Well, believers should be baptized by the church. Believers really ought to be baptized by the church. And, And if we remember what the significance of baptism is in the first place, I think this, again, becomes something that is very clear. So if God's people are marking someone as one of their fellow brothers or sisters in this covenant community of God's people, it only naturally follows that you would be baptized by God's people, by the church, by fellow believers in Christ. In other words, uh, you shouldn't hear this, be convicted like, oh, I haven't been baptized yet, and then like, on your drive home, stop at Gray's Lake and just hop in. Now, there's a lot of reasons why you shouldn't do that. But just hop in the lake and baptize yourself. That's not how it works. Okay? Believers should be baptized by the church. Look at Acts 2 again. Verse 41. So those who accepted his message, they were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. They were baptized by who? The church. Because they were being added to the church. Marked as one of us. You are one of us. You are one of God's people. Believers ought to be baptized by the church, by fellow believers, because you are being marked as one of God's people. And our practice here at Walnut Creek is that at the end of every month, we reserve the last Sunday of each month for baptisms. And we also have a couple of special uh, occasions where we do baptisms as well, or where we reserve the space to do baptisms as well. One of them is coming up on September 10th, okay? So about four times a year, we just have one service. So we will have our together fall gathering, uh, Sunday, September 10th. And during that service, if you want to receive baptism, if you want to be baptized, if you are a believer in Christ, who has not yet been baptized as a believer, that would be a great opportunity with God's people to be marked as God's people, among God's people. Okay, And if you want to receive baptism in the church, uh, the way that that you can uh, facilitate that process happening is this. So we used to utilize and... You still could utilize uh, a slick little online form to express interest in baptism, Uh, but I'll just tell you, we're a very relational church, and so the the best way, probably easiest way, and uh, I will say the most certain way uh, to facilitate that process of baptism is to have a conversation with one of our pastors. Myself, Pastor Mike, Pastor Cole, or Pastor Steve, and any of us would love to sit down and have a conversation with you about baptism. And in that conversation, uh, if you are interested in receiving baptism, we'll just talk through your testimony, okay? Your understanding of the gospel, your understanding of baptism, and we will help you to get uh, connected to one of our services where we hold baptisms. And again, we we have that coming up September 10th uh, for our together service and. If you are not yet baptized, if you are a believer in Christ and you are not yet baptized, what I would tell you is this. uh, You need to be baptized. That's our practical application for today. This is where we're going to wrap things up. It is not a small thing for a believer to be baptized. It's also not a small thing for a believer to refuse baptism. Again, That puts us in no man's land where believers don't belong. If you are one of God's people, then you need to receive the mark of God's people, the sign of that covenant relationship, which is baptism. You need to be marked by God's people, among God's people, through baptism. Okay, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for just the gracious gift of baptism. Thank you, God, first and foremost, for the gracious gift of that wonderful internal work of conversion that you accomplish by your own grace through faith in Christ. God, thank you that you are good to redeem us and to change us, God. But thank you that even beyond that, you place us into a community, into a a community of your people. You don't leave us alone. You don't leave us on an island, God. And as you bring us into that community, you mark us as your people through baptism. Thank you for that wonderful gift of your grace. And I pray if there's anyone here who is not yet baptized as a believer in Christ, I pray, Lord, that they would... Obey you and that they would receive baptism, God. Be marked in the community of your people, Lord. And I pray if there's anyone here who is not yet a believer, God, save them. Save them. Do that work of conversion, Lord, by your grace, through faith in Christ. We pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.